Let's go ahead and turn to God's Word. This morning we will be in Psalm chapter 133. Uh, Psalm 133, we are um, in the last couple weeks of our series uh, entitled The Pilgrim's Path, walking through the Songs of Ascent. You know, from the beginning of the summer we've looked at Psalms 120 to now we're in Psalm 133. And these are songs that have been sung throughout the generations, specifically in their particular time. They were sung as the people would head towards Jerusalem several times a year for the different uh, celebrations to worship God. And today in Psalm 133, we see in these last three psalms, I mentioned this last week, but in the last three psalms, we see the pilgrimage, this journey for the people has met its end, that they are in Jerusalem now. So these are all... um, kind of in the realm of Psalms of Zion or a praise to God for who he is. Today we're seeing uh, this is actually a wisdom psalm, which means that uh, it's similar to a wisdom uh, book in the Bible. So if you think about biblical uh, wisdom literature like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, generally these books, what they do is they give an idealized picture of different spheres of life, okay? So they're giving an idealized picture about conflict or about marriage or about um, unity is what we're looking at today. So today, in Psalm 133, we're seeing that the Lord is revealing to us the idealized picture of what a body of believers broadly looks like unified under the blood of Jesus for us today. So we're going to look at Psalm 133. Again, this is a shorter psalm. Just a few verses. We'll look at the entire chapter. And this is the psalm we're in this morning, Psalm 133. I will be uh, reading from the ESV. It'll be up on your screens um, and in your bulletin as well. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you uh, this morning um, thankful uh, that you have given us this revelation of yourself in your scriptures. And Father, we pray as we look to this, a wisdom psalm, sing an idealized picture of what you have called us to, Lord, that we would not uh, be frustrated or dismayed by it, but, Father, we would be encouraged that you have given us the Holy Spirit to go before us, to work on our behalf, that we may be unified under the work that your Son did for us. And, Father, we pray that any um, distractions would uh, flee from our mind, but we would be attuned to what you have to say from the Scriptures to us this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I read uh, recently uh, a story about, uh, about these monks in a remote monastery, and I'm going to read it to you. Um, it's kind of about conflict some, but I'm going to read it to you here. It, says like, it goes like this. The monks at a remote monastery deep in the woods followed a rigid vow of silence. Their vow could only be broken once a year, and that day was on Christmas. And that vow of silence could only be broken by one person. Only one person could speak on that one day of the year. They could only speak one sentence, actually. And one Christmas, Brother Thomas had his turn to speak, 
It's Christmas Day, remember, he said, I love the delightful mashed potatoes we have every year with the Christmas roast. He sat down, silence ensued for 365 days. You might be thinking what I thought when I first read this story. You'd think a monk after 365 days would have something a little bit more enlightened to say. He talks about food like many of us do. Okay, they're just like us. The next Christmas, Brother Michael got his turn and said, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy and I truly despise them. One year apart. Then for another 365 days, the silence ensued. The following Christmas, Brother Paul rose and said, I am fed up with this constant bickering. (laughs) So we laugh at a story like this, right? We think it's funny, like even these guys who are super spiritual, right? Like have one sentence to say, and it's just bickering with one another. Maybe you hear a, a story like this, and we think, oh, it would be nice just to fight once a year, right? Maybe we should try that. The truth is that there's conflict everywhere we go, right? In our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, at the grocery store, living in this world with sin all around us, there is conflict. That's the reality. And sadly, the church is not immune from this conflict either, that even amongst God's people, conflict arises about mashed potatoes and things even heavier than that. Sometimes things that are so heavy that would split a church in half, or sometimes things that are small, and they pass in a short time. Either way, today in this wisdom psalm that we're getting from the pen of David, we see that the Bible is here showing us an idealized picture of unity, really the opposite of conflict. Unity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. So our big idea for today is brotherly unity sets apart the church from the surrounding world. Brotherly unity sets apart the church from the surrounding world. And in this text, the importance of unity is really shown in three different ways. He kind of says the same thing in three different ways. He first says it literally and then figuratively and then explains it spiritually what happens. Okay, so these three different ways. Verse 1, verses 2 through 3 and a half, and then the second half of uh, verse 3. Okay, before we get into the text, before we get into verse 1, I think it's important for us to just think of the idea of being in a community of faith together, okay? So the moment that you or I have confessed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, from the time we become a Christian, the narrative in the Scripture tells us that we are a member of the broader church. We like to say this is the invisible church. If we have professed faith and you believe in Jesus— So whether or not we formally join a church or are involved at all in a local body, membership in this invisible church is corollary to our faith in Jesus. One theologian says, we can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with our church than we can be a person and not be in a family. That we have mothers and fathers, whether they have gone away from us in a family, maybe we don't have any connection, but we at one point were born from a woman. In the same way, all of us who have faith in Christ are part of the body of Christ. It's, the, it's a part of the fabric of redemption. We see this picture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And all of Scripture, and actually you could say all of church history as a whole, knows nothing of the solidary Christian. That God's people are already par- always part of a community. 
We see this from the beginning of time. The creation was not complete until Eve was created for Adam. We see Jesus himself, he worked with 12 people and three even closer, that he was in a close knit of brothers. We see the apostles, when they formed the church in Acts 2 and 5, they surrounded themselves by 120 people to begin what we know as the Christian church. Later in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews even addresses the people for not gathering together. He said, you need each other. And Jesus himself, when he sums up the law, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We might think that the law ends there. Just to love God, that's all you need to do, right? But he goes on, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That our relationships to one another as believers is in the very fabric of our DNA. The faith in Christ is always linked to the community of faith. So today, when we're getting to this psalm, we're seeing an idealized picture of what that looks like, what that relationship looks like. And in its direct context, in Psalm 133, it would have been Israel being true to their calling to be a blessing to the world. But as a wisdom psalm, we can apply this very directly to the Christian church today. That we are seeing here an idealized picture of how God instructs his people to live with one another. So let's look first at his um, explanation, literally in verse 1. Verse 1 says this. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The psalm opens with an emphatic declaration. It is good and pleasing. And you may say, preacher, I don't need your explanation. I know what good and pleasing means. But I think sometimes we pass by little words like this. And say, oh, I know what that means. It's good and pleasing. It's nice. It's nice. It's a nice thing when people dwell in harmony together, when they are united. One theologian says that we could understand this. I think it's good for us to pause to think about what words like good and pleasing actually mean. In a short psalm, we have that um, available to us. We can take our time a little slower. And one theologian says that this could be understood as, as something that is attractive, even, even to the outside world, something that is worthy of admiration, something that is worth aspiring for, even something that is worth changing one's own behavior for in order to achieve. In other words, showing us something that someone from the outside would look in and see and say, wow, I, I, I want a part of that. How, how can I be a part of that? How do they love each other in that way? And if you have a physical Bible, or even on your phone, you can see there's a, for the ESV, there's a footnote that says this. Sometimes if there's a really close translation, uh, they'll give you like the second translation on the bottom. They choose the top one for, on purpose, but then they give it you on on the bottom. In this word, for, that word for unity, they also say together. And sometimes, even when I read it the first time reading it through it this week, I thought, okay, well, it just means that we're like kind of together, like in the same room. And, but I dug deeper into that word. And I realized that it's not together like we use it in the English language. It's actually a togetherness of heart. It is unified in their very vision for life, that we are together as one a relationship that is self-sacrificing, like you would be one for a brother or sister in your own family. 
So this psalm envisions a well-functioning community who is a gospel to the who is a gospel witness to the world. And here the community is literally commended. It is good and pleasing. Not only in this room, not only in the churches worldwide, but to the outside world looking in. So he goes from literally explaining it to then he uses the the use of simile, which we're going to look at figuratively next. So this is uh, verses 2 and the first half of verse 3. Verse 2 says this. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. You know, Exodus 29, uh, they're given instruction to consecrate the priests, the line of Aaron at this time. That the ordination of the priestly line was shown through the anointment of oil running over the head of a man. The oil runs down from the head to his beard onto his robe, and it was an over-the-top, amount of oil that they would have poured on this man, marking him as a priest of the Lord, marking him, setting him apart. This man was consecrated, set apart for God's purpose, for God's work in his life, and for the good of the people. So he's giving a metaphor. This is what the church, is. when it is unified, it is set apart in the same way In a similar way, God's people are consecrated. They are set apart. When they are true to their calling of being united, they are being set apart for God's work. This was part of the covenantal ideal. This is what it looks like for God's people to represent God Himself. If you don't know this, the Israel and Jerusalem, you know, they were wandering for a long time. We might think this idea of wandering, and they just kind of plopped in a place and said, oh, we're going to land here. This was, where they landed was intentional. It was next to water, and it was in the middle of the trade routes. So the idea was that people from the outside would come through this trade route, and they would go through Jerusalem, and they would see, who, who are these people? How, how, how do they live like this in unity together? And so we see that the call for God's people to be unified together is to be a public witness. I think now they're coming into Jerusalem. But when Jesus inaugurates the kingdom coming to earth, now Christians go out, right? We're called to go out to be unified together to our calling to be consecrated for the Lord. He goes on in verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. So Hermon was a high, it was a snow-capped mountain towards the northern end of the Promised Land, and it was known for its heavy dew on the mountain. And this dew, the uh, combination of the dew and the snow melt, would fall, come down the mountain, and it would nourish the rest of the land. It would flow into the Jordan River and then the Sea of Galilee, and this moisture was crucial, especially in the dry season, for the entire land. That this nourishing uh, moisture would somehow make its way to the Mount of Zion. And this image, it conveys that it is coming down to bring nourishment to the land. Bringing nourishment to the people. 
this idea of fruitfulness, right? Water comes down, you know, we don't get this a lot. Remember last year we got a lot of rain and like there was like weeds growing everywhere. It was like actually green places, right? You remember that? The rains came and we just saw vegetation that we never see in the desert. But imagine that. That's what, that's what he's seeing a picture of. You are like the dew that comes down to bring fruit to the earth for the people. That these people, that God's people would be a sacred community, fruitful to their calling to be a blessing. I want you to notice that these two metaphors, both uh, the oil that runs down and the f- dew that falls, those two words, how it's translated in the ESV, are coming from a higher place. And these two verbs are actually coming from the same root word. They're different in English for us, but they're actually coming from yarad in, in Hebrew. And this word is often just translated very literally descends. It just comes down, right? It's coming down a mountain. David is using this word on purpose. He's showing us these two elements given to the, for the flourishing of God's people are given from above, from on high, from God himself. And what he's getting at is that the unity of the church does not come from us trying to be really nice to each other. It comes from God himself. He is the one who bestows unity upon his creation. It is a blessing far more than it is an achievement. Unity in the church is given from the Lord for his glory and for the expansion of his kingdom. If you remember the psalmist is giving an, an idealized picture of the community of the Lord, right? This is what the, sh- the church uh, global, I'm not talking about particular churches, we can talk about particular churches for sure as an application, but globally should be striving for unity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. John Stott has a good little quote about this text. He says, fellowship or unity is not merely a coming together. Men come together in a battlefield to kill everyone, in gambling dens to rob everyone, on political platforms to oppose everyone. Fellowship or unity is experienced by those who come together to experience a common faith, a common purpose, and a common joy. That we come together as God's people, unified by faith, with a common purpose and joy. And this common purpose is to be nourished by God himself and for the expansion of God's very kingdom in the earth. It's a good illustration if you think about mountain climbers. I've never mountain climbed, but I read about this, so I can be be an expert for three seconds, okay? For safety reasons, mountain climbers rope themselves together when they climb up a mountain. That way, if one climber should slip and fall, he would not fall to his death. He would be held by the others around him. The church ought to be like that. When one member slips and falls, the others should hold him up until he regains his footing because we are all roped together by the blood of Jesus Christ. The truth is that in this very particular church, to apply this text to us today, we're pretty good at this. Being unified, being welcoming, we're pretty good at this. Allison recently says, you know, there's some, like, uh, debate that Olive Garden changed their uh, phrase, like their slogan. But she says, I think it's very true, that Christ the King is a little bit like Olive Garden because their old phrase was, when you're here, you're family. And it's cheesy, but it's really true. Like, we do a pretty good job at welcoming people in and inviting 
people into our lives, being close to each other, living life together. And I often get comments from people that come, uh, things that maybe some of you guys don't hear for the first or second time, and say, it was a really welcoming experience. It's really good for me to come. But while we do this pretty well overall, I would say, uh, there's always room to grow, right? So let's think about what, what hinders us even from taking the next step to be uh, more unified under the blood of Jesus. What hinders us from this type of Christian unity? Often, I think that this, you know, this psalm is a, kind of one of the beautiful things about preaching expositorily is that I don't pick the topic, right? It just comes in the text. So I think it's just good for us to be reminded of these things, right? To be reminded that we come together with a, with a similar purpose, to see Christ glorified. And often we can forget the bigger picture of what Christ has called his church to, and we get hung up on little disagreements that can seem important. So a text like Psalm 133 is so helpful for us to be reminded that we are called to be a blessing to the world. Remember, we talked about this type of unity. It only comes from above, right? It descends down to us. The truth is, if we're going to seek to be more unified, the first thing we have to do is seek God's very face and say, God, I... I I don't know even where to start. I want to love my brother well, but all I can think about is myself. (laughs) We seek his face. We ask for this type of unity amongst his church. And from there, we ask the Lord to reveal our own sin. Not, oh man, you can just tell that guy over there to stop being so hard to love. No, you ask the Lord to look at your own sin, to reveal it to yourself so that he may open your heart to his healing. My hope is that we would be a church that would be quick to see and admit our own weakness and that we would turn to the Lord knowing He is there to heal us. And when we submit ourselves in this way, if the Lord has ever, if you've ever gone through a season where the Lord kind of cracks open your heart and you see more than you wanted to see about your own sin, you know, once you walk away from that very difficult season, you walk away with more of a humble heart knowing you're actually very more sinful than you first thought. So when we submit ourselves to God in this way, it will bring about humility. Stott again says, most quarrels are due to a misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding is due to our failure to appreciate the other person's point of view. It is more natural for us to talk than to listen, to argue than to submit. If this is true in industrial disputes as much as it is in domestic quarrels, he goes on. Many conflicts in the world of employment could be resolved if both sides first examine themselves critically. This is what I want you to hear mostly. If we examine ourselves critically and examine the other side charitably, then our normal disposition of being charitable to ourselves and critical of others. The tension of today is due largely to fear and foolishness. Our outlook is one-sided. We exaggerate the virtues in ourselves and the vices in others. I'll ask you if that is anything like you, because I know it is often a lot like myself if I look deep inside. But we, from Psalm 133, as Christ's church, are unified under the blood of Jesus. So we're called to be unified to him and to one another. Let's look last spiritually. talked about it, the implications of being unified together spiritually for God's people. 
The second half of verse 3 says, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So where the Lord's people are living together in unity at the foot of the cross in Zion in the Old Testament, when the people are gathered together, God sends His grace and blessing. What is this blessing that He sends? What does the text tell us? It is life forevermore. Life with ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction that is only found in dwelling with God. When there is unity amongst brothers and sisters in faith, the Lord blesses the people. That's what the text is telling us. When we look at the whole of Scripture, we see that this type of unity, like we said, is not possible outside of God, right? It descends down from God to His people. That God needs to intervene on humans' behalf. And just like the oil descended down on the head of Aaron, and the dew descends down from the mountains, so in the same way does God's very Son, Jesus Christ, descend down to the earth. That God's very Son descends down to take on flesh. That our relationship with the Father could be restored. He descends to earth to turn the page in redemptive history. Now, the priestly line would look forward to a day when sins would be forgiven, and in Jesus, the sins would be forgiven, and God's people would be sent out of Jerusalem to go bring the kingdom to earth. God would send the true blessing, the seed of Abraham, to bring unity in his church, and only through the work of Jesus on your and my behalf are we able to see our own sin and know that it has been taken by someone else. Knowing that we have been forgiven much, and in and through that, we are able to humble ourselves, to find unity amongst the brothers and sisters in faith. Because Jesus himself sends out a forgiven people into the world to be united as a lighthouse for the gospel. And one of the ways we show the world who has changed us is by our unity together. Remember, brotherly unity sets apart his church, Jesus' church, from the surrounding world. Let's pray together. Father, each one of us in this room falls short in this. Uh, We think about ourselves in a more charitable way than we do of other people. And for that, we ask for your forgiveness. And Father, we pray, as we do seek to be unified to one another, God, that you would intervene, that we know this unity only comes from above. It can only come from you. And God, we need you and your help in this. Father, today, as we come to this table, this is a picture, the true unity that you bring amongst brothers and sisters and our unity to you through Jesus. And Father, we pray uh, that you would come here, be present, that you would nourish us, your people, in this time and place. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.